Christmas, no doubt you think about Christmas music, right? We, all of us, uh, I would imagine. I, I guess I am, uh, I am supposing a few things, but all of us probably have certain songs that we really love, songs that we that we that we really really enjoy hearing at Christmas time. Maybe it's for some, maybe it's the, the the carols that we sing in church. Maybe for some, it's more traditional standards that you grew up with. But according to some research that I did this week, I, I think more of us than would probably admit it, uh, like Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. And the reason I say that is, according to an article that was published in The Economist magazine, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is the all-time top-grossing Christmas song. Listen to this. Since it was released in 1994, it has made her more than $60 million in royalties, that one song. And each year, it is, it is the top-selling Christmas song still this many years after its release, this said. In fact, in both sales and royalties this year alone... She's, in, she's expected to make over $500,000 for a song that, that she didn't write, right? I mean, a song that she sang to over 25 years ago, or I guess right almost 25 years ago now, that was released at Christmas. Listen to, when we think about songs, right, Christmas songs, think about your favorite Christmas song. Think about the lyrics to your favorite Christmas song and what those lyrics to your favorite Christmas song say. Maybe what they say about Christmas, what they say about this time of year. This is what our, everyone's favorite Christmas song, All I Want for Christmas is You, says. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing I need. I don't care about the presents underneath the Christmas tree. I don't need to hang my stocking there upon the fireplace. Santa Claus won't make me happy with a toy on Christmas Day. I just want you for my own, more than you could ever know. Make my wish come true. Baby, all I want for Christmas is you, right? What a, what a great, well, I mean, what, yeah. I think that says everything about us as a culture, right? That in and of itself, there, there it is in a snapshot. Contrast that with, with these words from my personal favorite Christmas song. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, Born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth. Thou art dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. See, the the songs of Christmas, one of the reasons that we love Christmas songs is because the lyrics paint a picture for us of hope, of peace, of joy, of love. These these things that we associate with Christmas time, with the Advent even, which find their ultimate meaning, their ultimate fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus. And the reason I, I wanted to study the Psalms of Christmas and look at these Psalms and these lyrics and, and, and how they point us to Jesus is because I think it's important that we see that written on every page of Scripture is the hope, the expectation, the joy, the peace of Jesus. 
And in the same way that we sing songs and we meditate on, you know, songs meditate in as much as they play around inside of our head and we hear the, we hear the melody and we hum and we sing the tune, that sort of thing. I hope that we will focus our attention on these psalms of Christmas and meditate and dwell and think on these words. With that in mind, let's read Psalm 110 this morning. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, first pass, first reading. You may read those words and you may think, I don't see the word Messiah. I don't see this psalm. This psalm sounds like someone who's fighting in a battle and, and he's conquering an enemy. How does, that, how does that point us to Jesus? Well, what I want us to see as we look at this passage this morning is that it does, in fact, have this imagery, this language of a conquering king and on also language of a holy priest. And, and in fact, it's those two images together. The idea of the conquering king and the, and the royal priest, which helped paint this picture of the Messiah, both who he would be and, and what he would do, the, the person, the work of the Messiah that Psalm 110 points us to. Throughout the New Testament, this psalm is quoted extensively, particularly the language of the conquering king seated at the right hand. And so let's look at a situation, an instance even, where Jesus instructs us that this is a messianic psalm. See, really we have to look no further than the, the teaching of Jesus himself who tells us that this psalm that David wrote was talking about him, was pointing toward him. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 41, we read that the Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus himself points to this psalm and and points to the Pharisees, the religious rulers of his day, and and, and asks them plainly the question. If Jesus, if the Messiah were to be the son of David rather than the son of God, then, then why does the Lord... Refer to does David refer to him as the Lord and, and, and refer to him as the Lord says, I will put your enemies under your under your foot in Psalm 110, quoting from Psalm 10. So let's look at that. Psalm 110, verse 1. The first phrase we see, the Lord says to my Lord. Now notice something about the way that this is printed in your Bible, because this is a subtle thing, but no doubt it's really significant. 
You see the word Lord twice in this phrase. The Lord says to my Lord. But notice the difference between the word Lord each time that it's printed. The first time you see the word Lord printed here, it's printed in what we would call small caps, meaning that each of the letters is capitalized. And then the second time, it's printed with just standard, uh, standard print, but with a capitalized initial letter telling that it's referring to a, a specific person. So in the original language, there's something happening here that, that we don't quite catch in English unless we understand why it's printed this way. The first use of that word, Lord, in the Hebrew language would have been the personal name for God, Yahweh, Y-H-V-H, as it would be written or transliterated uh, yod hate vav hate. That's the names of the Hebrew letters, the way that it's spelled out. Well, the, the Jews were so serious about their desire to not take the Lord's name in vain that when they would come to the personal name of God in the Old Testament scriptures, Yahweh, they wouldn't say it aloud. And even when they later added in the vowel pointing to the Hebrew text, because Hebrew was originally written as just consonants, all consonants. And later when they added in the vowels, in order that people might not mistakenly mispronounce the name of God and thereby take his name in vain, they, they actually invented a word. They took the word God, the personal name of God, and they used the vowels from the word Adonai, which was their word for Lord. And when you sound it out, when you put all of that together and sound it out, it's the word that we know as Jehovah, Jehovah. Jehovah is sort of this mashup, this amalgamation of two words put together, Yahweh and Adonai. Well, the second time you see the word here, it is the word Adonai. Adonai is the word meaning Lord, but the first usage of that word is the word for Yahweh or God. So, if we were to read it this way, God says, the, the Lord God, God of, of all creation, of heaven and earth, right? Yahweh God says, to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So God the Father says to my Lord, but notice that the word Lord is still capitalized in its second usage, which is an indicator. That's an interpretive thing, but it's an indicator to us that it's speaking here of Jesus, speaking specifically of Jesus. Though David wrote these words, David was already king when he would have penned these words. So he's not writing about his own ascension to the throne, He's talking specifically here about the future ascension of an even greater king, of an even greater Lord, the one who would reign until all of his enemies were, were placed under his foot. That's, that's the picture that we see. So the two things, I, I told you there were two images in this passage that are important. The first is that what we would call the kingly rule of Jesus. And so as we look at that this morning, I want us to see it's the power in Jesus' position power in Jesus' position. Now, what we understand, ultimately, is that because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, you and I, we have an advocate on high. That, because of his kingly position, his royal position as king, we have an advocate on high. So this picture of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, this is an important image. In the, in the Old Testament time, in, in ancient culture, this image of a king seated 
or someone, excuse me, seated at the right hand of the king is, is the picture of someone who rules with the king's authority. And most often, that would have been the position for the prince, the one who stood in line to ascend ultimately to the throne. But Moses, beginning with Moses in the book of Genesis, we see this, excuse me, in the book of Exodus, we see this language applying this, this, this position of, of the authority at the right hand of God, speaking of the, the majesty, the work, the divine power. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, in a song, what we know as the song of Moses, Moses says this, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Do you see some of that same language in this psalm? The right hand of God shattering the enemy. It's a picture of his divine authority, his divine rule, his divine judgment over his enemies. And so this image here of the right hand of God, the conquering the enemies, and Jesus seated at the right hand of God is intended for, to help us see his authority. But there's a second image here that would have been significant in ancient culture as well. And it's the, the picture of the enemies under the foot of the king. In Joshua chapter 10, we see that as the children of Israel enter into the promised land and as they defeat and drive out the, their, their enemies in the promised land that God was giving to them, we see that Joshua brought foreign kings, conquered kings before the leaders of Israel, the leaders of the tribes. And he instructed the leaders of the tribes of Israel to place their foot on the conquered king's neck. And so they would, they would literally bind up and bring these kings and lay them at the feet of the, the, the leaders of the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes, the leaders would place their foot on the king's neck. It was symbolic of the fact that they had conquered these kings. We read in Joshua chapter 10, verse 24. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men who had, of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be def- afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Again, it's, it's a symbolic picture of a king or a ruler who has conquered an enemy. And so in saying that, that this one, this chosen one of God, the Lord, would rule from the right hand and that he would place enemies under his feet. It's saying that he would rule and reign with, with divine authority and that he would conquer all their enemies, all, all the enemies, anyone who would dare to stand against his divine and sovereign rule, his divine authority. This is an important picture that the New Testament picks up on and uses extensively. In fact, I'm going to share with you several passages of Scripture in the New Testament. So many, in fact, that you may just want to take note of these so that you can go back and study them later. Because, again, this is used extensively in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read about Jesus' position, that he is seated at the right hand of God. 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by, as by a man came death, by a man, meaning Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then those coming who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. There's that picture again. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It's this authority of God, his divine authority, ruling, putting his enemies under his feet. And then specifically with regard to the the place of the Messiah, Jesus' position as we're calling it, seated at the right hand of God. We see this throughout the New Testament, that this authenticates his place as the true Messiah. And so in Mark chapter 16, verse 19, it says, The Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, the disciples, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus' position at the right hand of God signifies his place. It authenticates his place as the true Messiah. Not only that, it informs our prayers, knowing that Jesus intercedes on our behalf. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so Jesus, from the right hand of God, this position of authority, intercedes on our behalf. And so it authenticates his place as the true Messiah. It informs our prayers, knowing that he intercedes on our behalf. And also it instructs us about the priority of our lives. Colossians chapter 3 Verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So for us today, as we understand this, this picture of Jesus' position and the power, the authority that he has from his position at the right hand of God, this authenticates his place as the true Messiah. This it, it, it instructs and informs our prayers knowing that he intercedes on our behalf. And it also it instructs us about the priority of our lives. That in light of Jesus' authority over sin and death, that we ought to submit everything to him. As it says in Colossians, we are to seek those things which are above our lives are not just about living here in the moment, right? Our lives are about things of much greater consequence. And Jesus' position at the right hand of God reminds us of that. It points to his power. Look back in Psalm 110. See some of the, some of the other language here that speaks to this power of God from his position of authority. The Lord sends forth from Zion. He says, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So he has this kingly rule in the midst of his enemies. It says that the Lord is at your right hand, verse 5, and he will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This language is, is, is picturesque. It's it's metaphorical. It's intended to, to show that God will conquer all of his enemies, that there will be none who can stand against his power ultimately. And even as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be conquered would be death. 
But of course, we, we anticipate, we look toward this day when Jesus will come again and he will ultimately, once and for all, deal with death. And he will in, institute a new heaven and a new earth and bring about a new kingdom in his second coming. And his reign and his rule will be forever. But what does all of that mean for us today? Well, I'll go back to the point that I made initially. Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, you have an advocate on high. Meaning that Jesus, from his position of authority at the right hand of God, advocates for you. He intercedes on your behalf. He is working for your good. He has divine authority over sin and death so that he can offer forgiveness of sin, freedom and redemption to you because he has conquered death in his resurrection. And he will conquer sin and death ultimately in his second coming. John chapter 16, verse 7. Jesus says something that is so important. Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and that word helper is referring to the Holy Spirit, but the word literally means the advocate. The advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit works as an advocate for us, working on our behalf, guaranteeing our salvation Ephesians chapter 1 tells us he was given to us as the down deposit, excuse me, the down deposit, the down payment, the deposit, guaranteeing, I just made up a word, down deposit, the down payment, the deposit, guaranteeing our, our salvation. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And how is that possible? It's possible because Jesus says, because I am going to the Father, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And when I go to the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you. Now, if it were up to me, I'm being honest for a moment. If, for, for, if it were up to me, I would choose to have Jesus here with me in the flesh so that I could talk to him, so that I, could, that I could speak with him, I could ask him things. But Jesus tells his disciples, no, it's, it's really better for you. It's to your advantage that I go. And there's two important reasons. One, because in going to the throne of God, in going and returning to the Father, he would be seated at the right hand of God, meaning it was symbolic of his ultimate conquering power. But also importantly, when he ascended to the throne, he sent his Holy Spirit into the world to live with us. And so now, even though we don't have Jesus in the flesh with us any longer, according to Jesus, we have something even better. We have his Holy Spirit living inside of us, the advocate, the helper who has come to point us to Jesus so that we might trust him. So we see the power in Jesus' position. But secondly, we also see this picture of Jesus, the Messiah, as the priest. It says to us in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's Interesting, right? Because who or what is Melchizedek? Again, we, we see this explained 
in the New Testament extensively, particularly in the book of Hebrews. Now, it's explained in, in numerous places. It's spoken to in the New Testament. But particularly in the book of Hebrews, if you begin in Hebrews and just read, and if you were to highlight all the references to Melchizedek, it begins to paint this picture of who Melchizedek was. Melchizedek was the king of Salem in the time of Abraham. So if you go all the way back into the book of Genesis, there was a time, a season, when Abraham was fighting against enemies and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came to his rescue. Salem, the ancient city of Salem, later became the city known as Jerusalem or Jerusalem. Right? It's, the, it's the holy place, the dwelling place of God, or as it's referred to even in this psalm as Zion, because the city of Salem was located atop Mount Zion. And so Melchizedek was the king of Salem, but not only was he a king of Salem, both in Genesis and again in Hebrews we see that he was a priest of God. And so he was both the priest and the king. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, shows us, paints this picture of how Melchizedek was a type, what we would refer to as a type. He was a forerunner. He was an, an, an instrument that pointed the way toward an even greater figure who would play both the role of priest and king over the people of God. Of course, Hebrews tells us explicitly that's Jesus. Jesus was in this order of Melchizedek, as it says here in Psalm 110, that he was he was both king and priest over the people. So we see the purpose in Jesus' priesthood. In fact, if you were to focus in specifically on Hebrews chapter 7, and I won't. I've preached on this previously, and so I'll just point you back toward a previous message. You can go on our website. You can go to our sermons, and you can find the sermon that I preached from Hebrews chapter 7 on Melchizedek and his divine roles at the latter part of 2016. Or you can also just go to iTunes and search our podcast in the iTunes store and find this. So uh, go backward and you can find where I've preached on this previously. But in that message in Hebrews 7, I, I showed that Hebrews 7 shows us a few important things about his role as priest, Jesus' role as priest. That as, as the ultimate priest, we would say, Jesus supersedes every human priest, that he introduces a new hope for us through his work as priest, that he's the guarantee of a better covenant than the old covenant, that he continues forever, his work, his priestly duty will continue forever, that as, the, as a better priest, Jesus saves to the uttermost, and that ultimately he intercedes on our behalf. All of these are the, the workings of his role as the divine priest, meaning that he, he mediates this covenant between us and God. And that's an important thing for us to understand as well. Because of Jesus' position and the power in his position, we understand that we have an advocate on high. But because of his purpose in, in being the priest for us, we see that we have a mediator with God the Father. So because Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, as it says in Psalm chapter 110, you, you have a mediator with God the Father, meaning that he made a way. What does a mediator do? A mediator takes two parties and works to bring them together, right? 
That's exactly what Jesus has done. God and his divine sovereign authority and rule. Us in our broken, sinful state. That Jesus bridges the gap between us. How did he do that? By offering himself as payment for sin. So Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, says this. That when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places. And then it goes on to say in verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Hebrews tells us, in his role as the divine mediator, as this perfect priest making a way for us to be at peace with God, that Jesus offers himself, offers his life as payment for our sin. This is so important that we, that we see this picture, that he is a priest who has made a way for us to be forgiven forever so that we can experience the blessing that comes through his power and his authority. It's these two things together, Jesus as both king and priest, both in power and in priesthood, in the purpose of his priesthood, that he made a way for us to be forgiven and set free. And so as we think about Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one of God who offered himself for us, who gave his life to make payment for our sin. Let's consider that he is both our advocate and he is our mediator. Now, I want to I end this morning by talking about why those two roles are so significant. Why is it so significant and so important that we understand Jesus as advocate and as mediator? Here is just the plain truth. And I'm, in many ways, rather than pointing to any one particular verse, let me summarize the message of the New Testament as a whole. You and I, because of our sin, are broken, separated from God. And in spite of our best efforts, there's nothing we can do to bridge the gap that exists between us and God. Despite our best works, our noblest of intentions, there's nothing we can do to pay the price for our sin. And yet Jesus, because of his love for us, because of his ordained purpose as the chosen one of God, Jesus offered himself on the cross. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. He didn't deserve to die the way that we do. And yet he gave himself willingly. Not only did he offer his life, but on the third day, He was resurrected from the dead. He rose victorious from the grave. He conquered death. And because he has conquered death, now he has ascended to this position of authority. This position uh, that's pictured in, in him being at the right hand of God. And there, at this picture of authority, he mediates this covenant between us and God. He makes a way for us to be forgiven if we would trust in him and his saving work. 
It's the, it's the gospel is embedded in this picture of Jesus as our advocate and Jesus as our mediator of the covenant between us and God. It's the picture of the gospel. And when we think of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the king, Jesus, the priest, we cannot help but see the beauty of the good news, the hope of the gospel, that he makes peace between us and and God through his sacrifice. But if I can for a moment, let's make it personal. Has there ever been a moment in your life when by faith you have called out to Jesus, surrendering your life to him? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you have trusted him and his promise of forgiveness by asking him to be the, the savior of your life, receiving what the New Testament described as that down payment, or what I called the down posit, the down payment for your sin. Have you ever received that promise by faith, by surrendering your life to him, allowing him to be your mediator, your advocate with God the Father? If there's never been that moment that you can point to in your life, that moment where you know that you surrendered your life to him, then I would encourage you, make today the day. Let today be the day when you surrender your life to him, when you, when you trust him for the forgiveness of your sin, to be your advocate with the Father, the one who mediates this covenant between you and God so that you might be forgiven of sins. In a moment, we'll have a time of invitation, a time of response. And even as we sing the song of response. Today, if you want to surrender your life to Christ, then I would encourage you, come, take myself, take Brad by the hand and just say, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus today. And let us walk you through a prayer of faith where you would admit your sin to God, where you would, where you would confess before him that you, you believe he sent Jesus to die on the cross and that you want to make him the Lord, the Savior of your life by receiving this promise personally. Today could be the day that you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, that you receive this promise of salvation, and he becomes your advocate, the one mediating on your behalf with God the Father. And if that's what you want to do today, then again, uh, you, you just come forward during the invitation and take Brad or, or me by the hand. And for anyone else who's here today, maybe you've trusted in Jesus, but you're still thinking about the personal application of all of this. Can I encourage you? The good news in all of this is that you aren't alone. You don't have to go it alone. You don't have to do it all alone. Jesus, your advocate, is working on your behalf, interceding on your behalf. If you will do what Colossians chapter 3 says, if you will seek those things that are above, if you will live for things that are eternal, if you will look to God and follow him and walk in obedience to him, that's really what it means to seek the things that are above, then he will guide you, he will instruct you on the way that you should go, the way that you should live. And you will know the blessing of peace that comes with walking in obedience with him.
as we prepare now for our time of invitation, our time of response, I want to encourage you to maybe take your things and just set them aside and even assume just a a posture of prayer this morning. I'm going to say a word of prayer for us. And even as I voice a prayer, I want to encourage you, this would be a moment that you begin, that you initiate this response by saying, God, would you speak to me? God, would you lead me? God, would you instruct me today? And how I can take this truth and I can live in obedience to this, how I can walk in obedience as I seek the things which are above. I surrender my life to you. Would you join me in prayer?